I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Uh, Our program tonight is dedicated to our sister and friend, Judy Barrett, who left to be with the Lord on Sunday, 3.45 in the afternoon. We love you, Judy, and we will miss your smile and your heart and your fascinating wit. Uh, We want to remind anyone out there who has not found a place to study the Word of God verse by verse that we teach the Word here on Sundays at our campus gatherings. You can join us from anywhere in the world through live streaming video. And uh, just go to the website, I think it's up there, and you can uh, tune in either at 10 a.m. Mountain Time for milk or 2.30 Mountain Time for meat. If you can stay awake, we think it's worth it. Uh, Our good friend Russ gave me this article out of the Deseret News. It's, uh, the article is found under Mormon Times. It's a very frustrating little segment of the paper, in my opinion. Uh, But uh, Russ passed this on, and I'm glad he did. The title of this Mormon Times, written by Stacey Deuce, is Enough Already. Mormons Love the Bible. And Sister Deuce goes on and talks about a study done by the American Bible Society that puts Mormonism in a group of non-Christians along with atheists, agnostics, and other faiths, including the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, this has angered the writer terribly. And she says, apparently, uh, my opinion is equal to that of an agnostic when it comes to the Bible. And... I know she's saying that tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. When it comes to the Bible, her opinion of the Bible, having been LDS and know how they study and read the Bible within an LDS context, she's absolutely right. It's as if you were someone who didn't know. That's all without knowledge and agnostic. Uh, She says that, uh, I guess it doesn't matter to the ABS, this American Bible Society, that every member of my family has a personal copy of the King James Bible next to his or her bed. 
I guess it doesn't matter that my daughter's bookshelf of Christian literature contains no less than 37 non-denominational books on Bible stories. I guess it doesn't matter that I'm a Sunday school teacher who reads from both the Old and New Testament scriptures weekly. She says, I guess it doesn't matter that, uh, uh, that for two years my children get up for an hour before school and they study the Old and New Testaments. The way she's describing it, you would think that they are really, really into the Bible. It is absolutely not true. I can say that because I've been a Christian now for since 97, actively participating since, I don't know, 2003. So it's been about 10 years and you wanna see Bible study, go to a Christian church. The Mormon church doesn't touch the Bible. It doesn't touch it. And when it does, it teaches Mormonism through the Bible. It does not teach what the Bible teaches. It teaches what Mormons want the Bible to say it is teaching. And there's a giant difference. She goes on and on and on and talks about all these different things. I want to ask her a question. Why do you suppose, Sister Deuce, that the ABS placed Mormonism in the category that they did? Do you think it's just because they don't like you or they're jealous of you or the Mormon faith? It's not. It's because you don't love the Bible. You say you love the Bible. It's like the commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart. That is, a, is a, it's everything. So when you say you love the Bible, I would imagine that the Bible would be just a major, major focus of your life. And just because you have copies of the King James and just because it's been cross-referenced, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't mean you love it. The things that you love, you spend time on. You say two years, that's every, that's every six years you will spend two years, one year for the Old Testament, one year for the New. Let me just put it to you this way. In, in our study, which is not unique, it took us almost nine months to get through the book of Matthew. So you spent a year for the entire Old Testament and a year for the New. You do not read the book of uh, Romans at all. You skip anything that has to do with grace and you couch all of it in Mormon doctrine. So you say you love it, but uh, you know, I, I really don't think so. In fact, what I do see is that when you think about Mormonism, what they do is they dilute, D-I-L-U-T-E, not delude, but they dilute every single principle of Christianity Mormonism will dilute, okay? Uh, the good news is diluted by more. You have to go to the temple. You've got to do this. It's diluted by more and more. Uh, heaven is diluted by having a number of levels. It's not just heaven or hell. It's a number of levels for the LDS. More dilution. Uh, God's singularity is diluted by the fact the LDS believe that God, there's a multiplicity of gods, and that God has a father who has a father who has a father, an eternal regression of gods. That's a dilution of God. Everything they do is a dilution. Marriage is diluted by the LDS because they allow their men today to be sealed to more than one wife. I mean, if you have delusion in when it, dilution when it comes to God, you're gonna have dilution all the way down the line. And you say you love the Bible, you've diluted that too. How? You have three other books. Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and you have modern day revelation that will trump what the Bible says. So, Sister Deuce, you say you love the Bible and you make these, enough already, Mormons love the Bible. I would put it this way. I would suggest 
that Mormons love the Bible with the same amount of love that they have for Jesus. Same amount. He's a footnote in your religion. You are in charge of your salvation. He helps you repent. He helps atone for your sin, but he is a footnote, and so is the Bible. So let's be frank and move from there. Last weekend in our, in our discussion on the Trinity, we had a caller call and ask about Matthew 28, 19. This is gonna be very interesting to you, I think. It says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This is one passage that is constantly used by Trinitarians to show the three separate and yet one God and to be baptized in uh, that way. I wanna touch on this a bit more before we go on tonight. I mentioned last week that it does not appear that this translation of Matthew 28, 19 was present in any manuscript before the fourth century AD, which is around when the Nicene Creed was established, okay? Earlier church fathers, any manuscript evidence we have from before that, and I'm not sure we even have any, but any early church fathers, nobody before the fourth century ever cited Matthew 28, 19 in the way that we read it in there now, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you read the, the uh, early writer Eusebius, look at, the, just put it this way, make, make this hand the Nicene Creed and the establishment of the Nicene Creed, okay? And this is Christ's birth. Eusebius, before the Nicene Creed was established, 18 times in his writings, reported that Jesus told his 12, go and baptize in my name. That's how he quoted it, go and baptize in my name. Go and baptize in my name. 18 times Eusebius writes that in his writings. Council of Nicaea occurs under Constantine, and guess what? Eusebius, three times thereafter, says, go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's, a tr that's true. So uh, that, that verse, I would suggest, was somehow manipulated, and where Jesus said, go and baptize in my name, the Trinitarians from fourth century on inserted Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Now, Justin Martyr, who wrote in the middle of the second century, never translated that passage with the Trinitarian view. He always uh, translated it as baptizing in my name, Jesus saying that, all right? But let's let the Bible itself back this up. And in the New Testament, we find that it supports Jesus saying to his apostles at the Great Commission, go and baptize in my name, all right? This is how. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, in Acts 2, 3, who was taught by Christ, he received the Great Commission from Christ, right? The first converts, there are Acts 2, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter tells them. Peter there in the Acts record doesn't say what looks new Jew converts, the Holy Spirit's fallen, now go repent and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And he was taught by Christ at the Great Commission. Why didn't he say Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Because Christ didn't say it then. He said baptize them in my name and the writers from Constantine forward changed that, that very supportive evidence of the Trinity. In Acts 8, 16, Luke notes that some believers 
uh, had the Holy Spirit fall on them, but writes, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he, he says the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen on them yet. They've only been baptized, how? In the name of the Lord. So we have a second witness in the book of Acts that the early church were baptizing in Christ's name only, okay? In Acts chapter 10, Peter was bringing the gospel uh, to the house of Cornelius, and Peter says to them, this is Peter, taught by Christ, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. That's what Peter's, again, there. No Father, Son, Holy Spirit, name of the Lord, okay? Jesus purportedly said in the Great Commission to his apostles to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the very men he said this to and gave this direction to go out and are only baptizing in his name alone. How come? What gives? What gives is the fourth century Trinitarian decrees of Father, Son, Holy Spirit conveniently came in and changed the passages in Matthew 28, uh, 19, and in 1 John 5, 8, which we won't cover tonight. That's another one that it didn't exist before. And both of those are some very main points about Trinity. When Paul trained of Jesus was passing through upper Ephesus, he had an interaction with believers. And uh, in the end, this is what we read, Acts 19, 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All the baptisms were done in his name. Everything in the early church. The Great Commission, the phrase for it was changed to fit Trinitarian doctrines. Come on, look, here's the deal. When Christians can get real and separate from the traditions of men, we will stand on more solid ground against Mormonism because Mormonism has adopted the same traditions. They're a counterfeit. They thought we'll adapt some of them but they, but they have adapted wrong ones. And so when the Christian church says, okay, let's straighten this out and let's stand upright, we will be able to further prove that Mormonism is nothing but a hoax. All right, listen, before we go to prayer, last week we finished some thoughts on the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of God. God is holy, God is Spirit, His Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and that God works His powerful will and su suggested strongly that the Holy Spirit is not a person separate from God the Father, but it is God the Father's Spirit. There are a couple of points I have to make regarding the stance, and then we'll continue on with the program. If you're a believer who embraces the Trinity or that the Holy Spirit is a person, far be it from me to suggest you're not a Christian. Uh, you wanna fight for concepts of Trinitarianism, feel free. I, I, don't, don't fight me, though. Uh, Again, this ministry is not at war with flesh and blood. We are not at war with individuals. I'm not at war with any specific Mormon. I'm not uh, at war with any specific Christian, whether they're a Calvinist or a Trinitarian or anything else. I'm not sure this has ever been understood by, about the ministry. People think it's, it's an ad hominem attack on individuals, it's not. Think about this for a minute. If God wanted every doctrine to be perfectly picture clear, picture perfect clear, then they would be, but they're not. There are so many divergences of points of doctrine, and I sincerely believe that God has allowed this because he wants love to prevail. He wants us to get along with one another. 
He wants us to allow people to have divergent thoughts on issues that are non-essentials. And most of them are non-essentials. And so he's allowed his Bible to be interpreted by true believers everywhere in very, very different ways. But it's the believers who have come and attacked each other and bitten off each other's heads over doctrinal points, thinking that that is what pleases God. Thinking that that is what God wants. That he wants his people to be doctrinally sound and sure as they stand upright. He wants them to love. He wants us to love. He wants us to believe on him in the way that we have been led according to his Holy Spirit as we read his word. And when people vary, he wants us to love. We have gotten that mixed up. So we have to ask ourselves, why is there so many variants out there? And again, I think it's opportunity to love. If there's certainty, the opportunities to love are limited. It's just certain. The second thing I want to respond to has to do with the opinion that God has called me to reach the Mormons. That's what he's skilled me with, and therefore I have left my calling. You have no idea of what God has called me to do. I know what God has called me to do. I'm in my flesh. I have the Holy Spirit. I seek him. I know what he wants. You don't. So you don't have to send the emails and do the things that say you need to get back. You can pull your support and say, I've fallen from my call to attack the Mormons. I don't care what you think. I care what God thinks. Here's the thing. I wasn't created to attack Mormons. I attacked Mormons because I was created with an independent spirit that does not like lies, okay? And so I have that same independent spirit as a Christian, and it flows over into that realm. You've mixed it up for your own purposes, all right? So what I did toward Mormonism is because I'm a seeker of truth. Why do this? Because in the Christian church, it needs it. And after spending so many years telling the LDS to pull the moat out of their eye, it's time we remove the beam from our own eyes. And the LDS people continue to flock out of the bondage of Mormonism. And it makes no sense for them to flock right back into another church full of garbage, full of tradition, full of the teachings of man. And this is what this year has been focused on, trying to expose those practices and various doctrines and uh, of bondage found in both Mormonism and Christianity, throw them away and move in from there. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. <coughs> Father, we uh, love you and seek you. We want your truth. Forgive me for the things that I suggest or believe that are wrong but read my heart, shine a light into it, and anyone else who wants to walk in truth, that you will shine a light into their heart and you will be their God and we will be your people. And those areas that come between us, Lord, don't let them and let us be people who love, walking by faith. Help us as we sojourn into a new area tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you know the rules of the game, right? We're gonna take all that the LDS says about the new topic, and that's the topic for the next few weeks on salvation. And we are going to dissect that and talk about what their prophets have said about salvation, how it occurs, how it's brought on, how it's kept, how it's maintained, how to reach exaltation from it. We're gonna take all that is good and we're gonna put it in the middle. We're gonna take all that is bad and we're gonna put it in the trash can. Then we're gonna come over to the Christian side 
and we're going to take essentially two points, principal points when it comes to salvation that Christians believe in. They believe in the Calvinist view and they believe in the Arminius view. We're going to take the good points from those. We're going to keep them and put them in the middle, common ground for Mormons and Christians to understand. And we're going to take the stuff that is false and we are going to throw it in the trash can too. Now, we start by reviewing the LDS views of salvation, and once they are clearly sifted, we'll move into the ones on Christianity. And then once both are cleared, we'll move on to what I believe the Bible says contextually. But before looking at the LDS side, I want to offer an illustration to get you to think. And it's going to be a, we've done this at the Bible study the other night, so that's not going to be as engaging because we don't have people talking, but I want you to rhetorically ask yourself and think about what I'm about to show you, and I want you to think in your mind how you really, truly, as a believer, understand this little illustration, how you see it, what your opinions are. Ask yourself those things, okay? Just really sincerely, if you're a hardcore Calvinist five-pointer, answer honestly what you are going to see here and what you think in your heart. It's going to do a lot if you do. And it may be the only thing we get to tonight. So let's go to this uh, drawing and I'm going to explain the situation. What we have up here is a bunch of people getting on, we're going to just call it the Jesus plane. We have a Catholic. Now, each of these people are devout in their faith. They believe completely what their faith teaches them. But understand something. The reason they even got out on the tarmac is because every one of them, in their faith, in their doctrine, in their praxis, in their sacraments, their communion or non-communion, all profess Christ. Now, you might not agree with what Christ they profess, and you might say, well, that's not the real Christ, and that's what we all do. You don't really worship the real one. I get that, and some don't. But nevertheless, these individuals certainly believe that Christ is in their faith. In fact, almost all of them, if not all of them, believe he is really the cornerstone, the preeminent figure of their faith. And so whether you agree that they're a cult or not, whatever it is, just remember, everybody who's going to get on that plane has an ardent belief in Christ in one way or another. Now, our Catholic woman here, she's going to get on first, and over here are her bags, and or everybody's bags, and it's their doctrine. And they're going to load it into the, to the baggage area, and so the Catholic gets on, a Lutheran gets on, all that they believe. An ardent Baptist gets on. Baptists typically are not... Uh, uh, Calvinist. We have Presbyterian, ardent Presbyterian. We have a Nazarene, very holy oriented, very Arminius types. We have a Methodist. We have a Pentecostal. Do you realize how different the, the, the praxis and some of the theology is just in that little line right there? And they're all sitting on the plane, okay? We have an apostolic church member, somebody at Vineyard. We have a Calvary Chapel person. We have an Episcopalian. And then we get up into the ones that are a little bit more questionable. Not the Congregationalists, they're very normal. But we have Seventh-day Adventists getting on, okay? 
They believe you got to keep the, the seventh day plus all the health codes. We have a charismatic Christian getting on. We have a Jehovah's Witness getting on. We have a Latter-day Saint getting on. Down here, we have a Salvation Army member, an Anglican, Church of Christ, the Foursquare, Community of Christ, all get on the plane. You understand the theological differences going on? These are the ardent ones. They believed in their doctrines, in their faith, and they all profess Christ. They have, in their opinion, a faith in Christ. Then we get to the Calvinists, five point. We have an Arminiist, a Remonstrant. We have a Preterist. We have a Communist. We have someone who does not receive or believe in the Trinity. We have a hyper-moralist who believes that the holiness movement is what is so important in their life. We have faith healers and snake handler getting on, and we have a member of the FLDS, there's actually two of them, <laughs> getting on the plane. All right, so the plane is loaded, the bags are loaded, the door is shut, the plane takes off, and it crashes right into the, right into the mountains, gone. Everybody on there biffs it. And they go, and listen, just stay with me, but we're not going to go through all the eschatology and the eschatological differences of where they go and heaven and hell. And we're just going to say, for argument's sake, they all go before God the great white throne. And they're all standing here, every one of them. Now remember, they all say Jesus is Lord. Lord, okay? I didn't put the Scientologists or the Muslims up there. They might include Christ in there, but they don't believe he's Lord. All these others say Christ is Christ. So they get up there and they are... Um, Believing in Christ, they believe that he was resurrected, that he suffered for sin. They believed him when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. LDS believe that. Uh, almost every one of them, relative to their doctrine, believe that they are correct in their views. Okay? I'm sure many of you have met people from these different faiths, most of them, if not all of them, and have found some to be liars and found some to be phenomenal people by their faith in what they have been taught to believe about Jesus. At death, every one of these individuals claim, every one of them, a faith and belief in Christ Jesus, a devotion to God, that the Spirit of God worked in their lives, and love for God and fellow man was present forgetting all theological ideas on judgment and eschatology, I have some questions for you. Who would you say is going to go to hell? Remember, it's just based off their faith. It's off their church, off their beliefs. Would you be in a position, in your mind, I'm not saying that you're the judge and are sending them to hell, but who would you think of all those people who boarded that plane of the different faiths are going straight to hell? Any of them? All of them? Some? Why 
would they go to hell? Is it because of the theology and the doctrine and the practice, or is it because their faith was wrong and how they loved was wrong, in your opinion? Second question, what would determine their entrance into heaven? What would it be as they stand here and they're looking up at God, if that was the scenario, it's not biblical that that would happen in this case, but let's say it was. Why would God say, come in? You have an answer. If, you, if your children asked you that question, you would say, well, people go to heaven because of this and this and this, and, and you know what you would say. And I would say that if you say that they had faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to atone for their sin, and they believe that he was resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven, I would agree with you. And you know what? They all believe that. Every one of those different people believe that to some extent or another. Not exactly, to some extent or another. Fourth, wouldn't every single one of these active, faithful religionists standing here, and remember, they really did believe it from the heart, wouldn't they lay claim to Jesus? Wouldn't they say that they were faithful to their faith? They would, okay? So here's the final question. What would be the distinguishing characteristic or trait that proved when they stand here that they had faith in Jesus? What would be the distinguishing trait that they had with them, or they performed, or they believed, whatever it is, what's the distinguishing trait? Think about this, you attackers. I'm guilty of it so much, and I'm trying to progressively repent for the attacks. Because there is one thing that God is going to look at, and he's going to look right at each of those people's hearts. He's gonna look at their heart. He's going to see if they had faith on his son. And we've already said that these people all claim to, and we already said they did. But we are gonna see that that faith translated into something in their lives. What did it translate into? Their faith is, we were saved by grace through faith, not of works, so we know that. What is it that proves the said faith was real? One thing, one thing. Love for God and for other humankind. I don't care who over here who they are, if they have had faith in the heart on Christ Jesus and they have loved, now this is with the agape love and that love means it was selfless and it means all those things that agape love is. In fact, let me talk about it for a second. Throughout his ministry, Jesus, he, he, he walked in love. His love was the agape kind of love evidenced by how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13. 
His love was not the kind of love that is sensual or erotic or for desserts or for family, storge love. It wasn't any of those human earthly types of love. It was agape love. And Paul says that kind of love is long-suffering. So the people here who said, I believe, I believe, and all of them are going to do it, God will know if they believe. I mean, he's going to know anyway, but we would know. They will know. We will know that we really believed if we had this kind of love for him and others. Did we have long-suffering love? Did we have love that was kind? Did we have love that didn't envy others? Did we have love that wasn't rash, was not puffed up in its own person, appearance, job, place in the world, status, title, whatever? Did we have the kind of love that does not behave unseemingly, Paul writes? Did we have the kind of love that does not seek its own will, but the will of God first? Did we have the kind of love that does not think evil, that does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth? Do we have the kind of love that bears all things? Listen, Paul describes this kind of love as believing all things. This kind of love believes all things. Have you ever thought of that? Hopes, the best, hopes for all things, endures all things, and never fails. We notice that Christ let people think and reason and choose. He said to his apostles, if they're not against me, they're for me. They said, there's a guy over there casting out devils in your name. Should we curse him? And he said, leave him alone. If he's not against me, he's for me. Do we have that kind of attitude or do we have the attitude that kind of comes along with the Pharisees? The Pharisaical kind of love. The Pharisaical kind of living. You can read the most scathing outbursts Jesus reserved for the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Mark 7, and Luke 11. I would suggest they had a spirit about them. And I hope this illustration helps see the spirit that's in you. I use it to, to help see the spirit that is in me. We know that when Jesus critiqued these guys in those three chapters, he accused them of several things. He said that they did things to be seen of men. Okay? They love titles. They love to be seen in public places. They love to have airs of superiority to the, and uh, against the common man, the great unwashed. They didn't want anything to do with them. They put heavy burdens, Jesus said, upon the people of God. Heavy demands for performance, for holiness, for tithes, for compliance to their ways. Heavy demands, Jesus said. You do this. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa to these guys in Matthew 23. He said they love the best seats in the house to be seen, to have power, to be respected. Respect my authority. They devoured widows' houses, it says. They went after him with tithes and offerings and, and winced at every penny that came in. 
They could not discern holy things. The promised Messiah came among them and they killed him. They neglected the important issues relative to their priesthood, which in our day and age would be they, they didn't preach the word of God. They, they taught their own fables. They focused on external laws and appearances rather than the internal heart. They looked on the outward. They were whited sepulchers full of dead men's dried bones. Do you see the difference? They claimed righteousness, but they were opposed to the spirit of God. They exalted the traditions of man over the commandments of God, and they took away the keys of knowledge. Bottom line, they were proud of their status, their titles, positions. They were controlling and loved power. They thought that they were holy, and they were of Satan, and they were self-centered and full of self-interest. And they had this tremendous appearance of religiosity where they thought that they could stand there outside on the tarmac and say, they're gonna go to hell if this plane goes down. They're gonna go to hell if this plane goes down. Well, they're not doing it right. Oh, that's a this, they're doing it wrong. They, they had this outward religious appearance where they knew it all. And yet Jesus said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites. In Mark 7, he says, he quotes Isaiah speaking of them, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Think about all this as we've talked. Now I'm gonna say one more thing and it's gonna jump ahead when it comes to a topic we'll get to and it's gonna trouble you, but it doesn't matter to me, it's in context of scripture. I believe that when this plane goes down, if it represents the general populace of the world religions that profess Christ, in my opinion, listening to what Christ said, I believe that the majority of those who would proverbially stand here are going to hell. You heard me right. I believe that when that plane goes, these people representing the peoples of all these faiths, most are going to hell. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus said, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, and few be there that find it. Few. And so while we can say we believed, and we can pretend we have love, Jesus said, it's a very, very, narrow passageway. Now what happens to them in hell and what goes from there, we'll talk about it another time. So I'm not preaching in any sense universalism in the sense that everybody is saved like accused of, but I am teaching there is a solution to those who will go to the place, the Sheol, after this life. All have stood on doctrine and theology and religious practices to ensure their place in heaven. It is the trend today that we stand on doctrine, practice theology, and that is our assurance into heaven. We have lost the fact that it's the lowly and the weak and the broken, the people who can't even read. It's the people who have a faith on God and a people who love as a response to that faith. That is what it's all about. We'll get to the answer of my, my thing I threw in there that's gonna upset some of you. 
Yes, it's Christ first. The regenerated heart that loves God and fellow man will come second. And so let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And while the operators are taking your calls, let me get to a few other points. This is from Bill. You are a lying, mocking antichrist. Thanks, Bill. <laughs> and you're a hairy, stinky beast. <laughs> now what? <laughs> Name calling. I mean, what are we going to do? Please give me a brief response to the following questions. From Jeff. Where do you get all these ideas you present? Are they original thoughts on your part or other thoughts you've been collecting and constructing both? Anything that's really, really original uh, is not mine. And anything that's sort of good, probably, uh, or fair, might be. Uh, if God is not three persons, is he two persons only? Just Father and Son. God is one. God is one. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He breathes his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, who serves and works and draws people to Christ. Did the Father and Son share the same Spirit since they are one? Or do they each have their own spirit that would make two distinct spirits? I believe there is one spirit, and, uh, and that is God, and that dwelled in Christ completely, fully. Which version of the Bible matches your requirement about how the spirit of God Christ is communicated? Or do you just self-correct a given Bible version as you read? I use the Thompson Chain uh, um, Bible, King James Version, but I read about seven different versions uh, while I'm studying, and I also consult uh, now strongly the Young's literal translation in the Greek because it helps clarify some, of, some terms that are otherwise confusing. Okay, uh, I can't see that. Are we gonna have someone run out? Oh, I gotta put my glasses on. Line two, we don't know who it is. Our, we have a problem with our computer. Line two, who are you? Uh, this is uh, Casey Provo. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Um, listen, I had a question. I'm listening to you tonight, and I'm a little confused about why you've suddenly become so untrinitarian, or don't have decided you don't like that word. If I understand your argument correctly from listening this evening, what you're saying is something in the word changed. The word was changed. And it seems to me like if there's one thing that's been consistent over this time with you is that you want to base everything on the Bible as it's come down to us in the written word. So can you explain that to me, or have you in fact changed your position? And if so, let me repeat. Let me repeat what you said so I understand. Are you saying uh, I have? Uh, I am suggesting that the word has changed, and therefore it's because of those changes. I don't believe in the Trinity. Well, you seem to be suggesting that somebody changed the word at some point to, to support Trinitarianism. Did yeah. I understand that correctly? You did understand that correctly relative to two places, and that's the Matthew 28, 19, and the 1 John 5. But only those two places. I think the word is, is infallible, meaning it, it has everything necessary to lead us to God. But I, I, all I'm saying is that evidence shows that that passage was manipulated. 
And uh, I, but before I even knew that about Eusebius and the changing of Matthew 28, 19, I've had suspicion on the Trinity forever. In fact, back when we were talking about Mormonism and when I wrote a book on uh, uh, Mormonism and described the Trinity, I described the Trinity in the ways I still see God today, but I've come to find out that that is not Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism is, uh, is something completely different than what I have always believed God to be. And so I'm really not changing. What I'm doing is saying, I'm not gonna use the term Trinity anymore because I don't think it holds biblical water. Okay. Um, well, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with you, and I agree that the Word has everything that you need to know in it. Yeah. Um, but I, just, I don't agree that it has this completely unchanged and untampered with. But clearly, I mean, depending on where you study, it seems to me that clearly some sections are tampered with. Yeah. Some sections are not completely, I mean, there's, there's room to disagree. Yeah. There is room to disagree, and that's probably the point I'm making. How do I explain that to my Mormon friends who say, well, see, you agree with me because, you know, you don't take everything in the Bible literally, too, because I don't. Yeah, uh, well, the Mormon perspective is very different, and one of the reasons why Christians, especially who are involved in apologetics with Mormons, stand so strongly on uh, epistemus verba, word perfectness of the Bible, is because they want to be able to win in a debate with the LDS who say, hey, listen, it's gotta be translated correctly. I think it's foolishness on our part to believe that the translations we have in our hands are perfect. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. The only thing Christians truly believe was perfect were the original writings that came from God's mouth to prophets or scribes' ears who recorded them. What we have today, they do have issues, but it's still, uh, compared to Mormon scripture, far and wide, eons of perfection ahead of Mormon scripture. I mean, the Bible is really good, but so, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you there too. I guess I'm just wondering, how do I explain to Mormons um, that what the Bible teaches really is different from what they teach when they say, see, you don't, you don't believe that differently from what I do. And in fact, I do believe very differently, so. Yeah, you know, the way I would say it is, listen, I'm not gonna be dogmatic about things to try to win an argument with you, but what I will say, my brother, uh, LDS friend, is this. The Bible has a history. The Bible has a lot relative to genetics and linguistics and places and people. And I trust it implicitly all through. There's a few places that are problematic. It would be foolish for me to suggest otherwise, but you are saying, trying to say the whole thing's problematic. You've thrown the whole baby out with all the bathwater, and that's your mistake. Okay, all right. Does that help? It, that, that may help, I'll try it. Yeah, give it a go, Casey. Okay, we'll do, thanks. God bless, we're going to Charlie on line one. Charlie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, Sean, Sean. Uh, I gotta ask you a question. When you were a surfer, did you have to fight a lot to get the spots you wanted to surf in? I fought a lot just because it was that fun. Was... <laughs> oh, okay. I just wondered how you got so tough, but uh, hey, we love you, what you're doing here, and you know, when God does say, uh, go away, I never knew you, because it is with the heart that we learn through the Holy Spirit to embrace that spirit and love of God, Amen. not by what our religious background is, but by the spirit. Amen. And, and I agree with you 100% on this. Uh, 
I'm going to lose a lot of friends over this, but... <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot. Uh, <laughs> hey, Charlie, where do you live? Keep up the good work, and, and uh, you've... Uh, the stevious, uh, I'm, I've got a lot of homework to do, so Check I'm going to be coming and hitting you up with a lot of questions. Check that out, Charlie. Where do you live? I live in Salt Lake. Oh, well, introduce but, yourself someday. What's that? Introduce yourself someday. Okay, I will. All right, my um, brother. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've been on my heart, the Trinitarian thing, for a long time. If people research the, the failed Roman church and they, they look at just some of the changes that the Jesuit, the Jesuit priest did in the, you know, because the church was being persecuted as, you know, the Antichrist, there was a lot of things that were changed, and they did manipulate a lot of the scriptures in that yeah. area. But. but you sound like a loving man, you know, and I want to I want to start really uh, airing on that, Charlie. I want to follow in the in your footsteps and be more patient, more loving, and uh, in my faith toward our King. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, my friend. All right, you take care. You take care. God bless. God bless you. That was nice to have a friend. I came out, uh, the back of my car has a Joseph Smith sticker, and I came out today and someone taped a sign on it. I will prove you wrong, or something like that. So it's nice to know there's somebody in Salt Lake who's a friend. Conservative talk show host, uh, show and television host Glenn Beck recently delivered a sermon at Liberty University, the nation's largest evangelical Christian college, speaking about miracles. Beck, a member of the Mormon Church, was invited to give a sermon on April 25th as the institution's final convocation meeting of the semester on a message about Jesus Christ and his miracles. Uh, he, uh, wow, it's, uh, it's really amazing. He cried three times in the presentation, and he had Joseph Smith's watch on hand. He talked about Joseph Smith as a martyr, and... Uh, he talked about there being differences between uh, uh, beliefs, but he had no problem at all referring to Joseph Smith as being a uh, martyr and as, as a, a, a tool of the Lord. And he quoted from LDS scripture. He interpreted biblical scripture in an LDS way. And he said, link arms, stand together. And uh, I wanna say now, this is not the kind of love I'm talking about. And it's really tough to tease this apart because we think, well, we, we need to be loving. And it's not loving if it's not truthful. And if it's not truthful, uh, and if it's not truthful, it's not loving. And it's not loving if it's not truthful. They have to be together. We will give people the benefit of the doubt, but it doesn't mean we will acquiesce and sell the gospel of Jesus Christ short or link arms with, uh, with groups that are certainly uh, at the top of that list, certainly aberrant in their biblical understanding. Uh, I'm not going to judge, and I'm not going to say who's going to heaven or hell, but I will say uh, Mormonism, the ism, the institution, the Jehovah's Witness institution, the Watchtower Society, um, Scientology, the top echelon is wholly corrupt and wholly evil. And it would not be loving of me to say otherwise. So that will never go away with our program and how we talk about it. I'm just talking about in-house people who are professing Christ, people who say they love. 
I'm going to hold hands off individually and not critique them. Uh, one last uh, email, and we'll wrap it up. How much time left, Mary? My wife is doing the clock tonight. I think she's been drinking a little because... Uh, <laughs> yeah, she says this is the best show she's ever seen. We have uh, nine minutes, and we're going to cut it short. There's one other... Uh, email I had here. Let me see if this is it. Well, I don't have it. And I don't think anybody will mind. I'm not going to try to make stuff up. There's no calls coming in. Listen, join us next week. We're going to lay out the whiteboard and we're going to start talking about the LDS soteriology. What they say, you're going to be surprised at what some of their prophets and apostles have said is necessary to be saved. And, um, and, and we'll take all that stuff and put it in the trash can, bring over that which can be salvaged, and that is good to build our common ground. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about uh, uh, Christianity. And in the final week, we will talk about what I believe the Bible says, and it will kind of dovetail in with what we talked about tonight. We love you. We appreciate your love and support. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride. Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monks